This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 75 of the Travel Writing World podcast. And being the last episode for 2021, I'm thrilled that Cal Flynn joins me today to talk about her newest book, Islands of Abandonment, which is one of my top books of the year. In addition to talking about her book, Cal and I chat about genre, form, and the first person in nature and travel writing. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Before we start the episode today, just a note to say that while the podcast is free, a lot of work goes into it. So please tell your friends about the show, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Also, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Cal Flynn. Cal, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Well, thank you for having me. So I asked you to come on the podcast to talk about your newest book, Islands of Abandonment which is an excellent book and has been shortlisted for prizes like the Wainwright and the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. Um, In addition to to talking about the book, I also want to ask you questions about your book's form and your approach to writing um, and all of that stuff. But but first, let's jump into your your new book um, in which you travel around the world exploring places that have been abandoned or impacted by humans for for whatever reason and and to varying, varying degrees. Um, it's a bleak book, but it's also a hopeful one. So I guess to start off, um, what, what was the, the driving question of your research? Um, what was driving, uh, what was the question driving your research and your travels? I suppose what I'm really interested in is like the, the tension between, um, this idea of these places being very sort of badly impacted by humans and being very, you know, man-made anthropogenic landscapes um, often on very large scales. Um, so there's something of the sort of the horror about them, you know, that, that really affected me um, emotionally, um, but also the tension with the, that sense of redemption and hope and recovery um, that comes through very strongly in almost all the places that I visit, that sense of, of what nature gets up to when we're not there and, and the, the true scale of regeneration already happening on this planet. I think that that sort of sense of hope that that comes through was important to me. I think partly partly because it it makes sense, you know, narratively to to have that. But I think also because in this time of of very bleak environmental outlook, it helps me a lot to feel like there is sort of some light at the end of the tunnel. That should we sort of act to to limit emissions and so on, that, that actually the planet does have a hope and, and there are all of these natural processes constantly at work repairing the damage that we're doing. And, and I find that concept very moving and I think um, other people might do too. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a theme that pops up in many of the the chapters of the book. Um, so your book deals with the ways in which I guess humans have impacted climates and uh, ecosystems. You just spoke about kind of the emotional connection you had uh, with the subject. So what sparked your interest in, in this subject? What was that uh, emotional connection that you have with it? Well, uh, a location that I visited that is not in the book, but certainly set me down this path was a trip I took um, to the Slate Islands, which are very tiny islands off the west coast of Scotland that were previously um, the sites of deep quarries during the 19th century, mm-hmm. a real sort of uh, centre of industry um, during that time. Um, and what's happened since the quarry shut down is that they've been flooded by seawater and the seawater is it's changed color because of impurities in the rock. And so you get these beautiful turquoise and cyan um, pools, very deep um, pools in the former quarries that you can swim in. And they've become sort of favorites of migratory birds. And these islands are newly beautiful. You, In fact, aesthetically speaking, they're much more of note than they were originally. Um, and so I went to write about that, having been tipped off about them by a local artist who often paints there. And I became really interested in the aesthetics of the post-industrial photographers like Edward Bertinsky often use these like man-made post-industrial places as, as subjects for their large form, format photography. And I suppose I was trying mm-hmm. to get at that um, question of, you know, how are these places, which are in many ways terribly ugly, also beautiful <laughs> in a different way. And while I was there thinking about aesthetics, um, I came to realize that the islands were completely grown over, you know, since they've fallen out of favor, industrially speaking, they have been grown over by all sorts of different plants, wildflowers, small mammals and birds live there. And I realized that actually ecologically speaking, they were also of a lot of interest um, and of scientific interest because um, they are these strange feral habitats. These are completely self-made, self-willed habitats often really weird mixes of species will will pop up on these brownfield sites um, and the way that they come together is currently of, of a sort of focus of ecological study so that sent me sort of spiraling down this path looking at, at larger sites of various kinds and all these these different issues that that play in these um, man impacted environments so I look at novel ecosystems which is uh, a phrase that scientists use to describe um, habitats which have invasive species sort of settling in. Um, it's a very controversial study, but I, I, I look at that in the context of abandoned botanical gardens. And I think the abandoned places allow us to see how the, the consequences of past actions can, can spool out over a, a long period of time. Um, they talk about ecological memory and that concept really sort of hung with me, this idea that landscapes hold history and hold memories mm-hmm. just as much as, as creatures might. And I think that, I don't know, it just, yeah, the, the idea sort of grabbed me and, and didn't let go. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like some of these chapters, as we spoke about, take on like this kind of hope, hopeful tone and, and some are a lot more bleak. And uh, just to say here, I won't give anything away that last line, <laughs> you know, what a way, <laughs> what a way to end the book. Um, you know, but you, you just referred to kind of like the scientific research. And I'm thinking here also about the media. And we often get this, um, I guess, narrative spun by the media and also by scientific research that, um, you know, we're doomed as a species or, you know, indeed that 
you know, other species are, are doomed too by us. Um, but your book, I think, complicates that. So I was wondering if, if you could talk about like how, how, how does exploring these ideas and how does exploring these places um, complicate kind of this popular narrative or, or how does it confirm that narrative? I mean, is it all doom or is it, is there something else at play going on here that we should be more cognizant of? Hmm. That's a, a really interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I suppose I've come round to saying that, that, that nature is essentially constantly in flux, right? And, mm-hmm. um, the, the species around us and the landscapes around us are constantly changing, but, but humans are these sort of like very intense change sources of, of change, like agents of change. And so that's, I think why we have all of this fear bound up with, with places that we have um, sort of tampered with because we do have an outsized impact on the environment around us. And so if you are looking at the world around you, looking for sort of purity and, and, and pristine mm-hmm. nature, um, then of course, it, it will seem like you're in a terrible, tainted world. If you have a slightly less sort of hard line attitude to, to what nature is allowed to be, you can actually come to appreciate the way that it adapts and expands and comes to terms with, I suppose, what's happened to the landscape and um, different species will come to the fore in different situations. So I guess it's given me a much more, I, don't, I, I no longer think of it entirely in terms of sort of um, hope and despair, but more just like coming to respect that change is constant around us. You know, it's a much mm. more sort of zen-like approach. I right. think that I've I've come to feel about the environment um, through the writing of this book. Of course, you've got to balance it. I think with like being responsible. You know, a a book of hope about the environment has got to always have this sort of ballast of of warnings about the future because I do think that that issues of climate change and so on are are real, are sure. are pressing, and are really breathing down our neck at the moment. So you've got to balance that that narrative of of hope and redemption with some some strong reality. And I think that that's what I come round to later is is talking about how well you know the planet. To, depending on how you measure it, the planet will probably be okay, but maybe not within the the life expectancy of our own species. Right. We might <laughs> it might feel terrible for us to be on the planet for for the next couple of centuries if we're not able to adapt and the species that we love are not able to adapt so i suppose it yeah it's, it's trying to strike that balance mm-hmm. yeah the chapter uh entitled a natural selection where you visit uh, staten island in the united states i think was particularly strong and speaks to this um this idea of you know that the however horrible it might be for us like we can't eat the animals in the sea or, or whatever but you know they can get on fine without us and indeed they will um, be fine uh, without us, um, but that's not to say that that's a good thing. Exactly, exactly. I think you can sort of you can look at these species that are adapting with a, a sense of wonder and also anxiety at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well, I wanted to know about the um, you know the qualitative component here in terms of uh, storytelling um, because. You know, I, th- I think one of the strong points about your book is that it tells a story. It's not just a, a talking head on the television uh, telling us what we should and shouldn't do, but it tells the, you know, you, you spoke about the memory of place earlier. And, um, you know, some of these stories, it, it's some of these chapters 
talk about the stories of places in a very kind of qualitative sense, if that makes any sense, right? Mm -hmm, it's like it's mm -hmm. you're articulating things in a very in a way that tells a story about these places and it gives um some meaning and and story to to them. So I was wondering like in in terms of being a storyteller, you know, what what is what is your understanding of like visiting a place and telling the story about a place? Well, I guess it's all like like centering subjective experience, right? In mm -hmm. a in a subject that we're often very interested in sort of objective measures. Um and I'm very concerned in my writing with sort of mood and atmosphere and mm -hmm. setting the scene and so on. And I think I guess that's because I'm coming at this from this perspective of of a writer and and I I, I think or I hope a kind of a, like a literary uh writer um as opposed to someone who's got a background in hard science or particularly you know climate science or or ecology. Um so my concern is very much narrative mm -hmm. um and and to get I suppose I do think it's important to to arouse people's emotions and and to make people feel the world and and sort of you know love nature if they, if they want to love nature or understand it in a kind of more physical or or bodily sense and so my writing about these places is very much sort of you know what does it feel like to be here to walk in it and I I often just describe the islands of abandonment as being a book about the ecology but also the psychology mm -hmm. of abandoned places because it's also you know how do these places make us feel the the thing about them being abandoned is that they are sort of post human and and we are humans and we're particularly interested in in our relationship to to those places as as people you know so what does it feel like to be a person in a formerly peopled place um which makes it sound very academic i guess it's just like you know <laughs> does it feel scary does it feel eerie what right. does it feel like to walk on on you know spongy floorboards and and crunch over broken glass that kind of thing you know I, 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 that's how it feels to me to walk in the place so that's the experience I want to get across yeah I want to kind of zero in on something that you just said you spoke about uh, centering the the subjectivity or the subjective experience of a place and you want that to come through in the mm. writing um, and it's it's I guess a conversation that critics have been having particularly about travel and, and nature writing, those two genres, or maybe they're one, I don't know, but <laughs> there's a lot mm -hmm. of talk about kind of decentering the self and uh, being self-effacing in these types of writing. Um, and I get kind of the point of those, um, those criticisms. Um, but I might like agree with you in a bit, a little bit and say that, you know, maybe it's impossible to write anything, but from a position of subjectivity, right? Like, I wonder if it's possible at all for anyone to write anything from a purely objective or non-subjective position. Um, but I, it's just to say that I think your book balances that quite well. Um, like you're present in the book, guiding us along, kind of like Virgil, uh, but you don't dominate the story. Um, so I was wondering if, like, like, what are your thoughts about the presence of the author or the presence of the self in, in travel and nature writing in general? And how do you, how do you balance those two? How do you balance the self in, in, in your story? Mm, yeah, that, I, I, I do think about this quite a lot, actually, because so many different writers take such different approaches. Mm -hmm. And I like the, the first person element, partly because I think it makes the writing accessible or, or sort of very readable. I find it somehow more drawing to, to follow the reader, the, the writer through, um, 
through some kind of journey, right? And you you learn alongside them. I mean, some writers take a much more are much more present in the narrative than perhaps mine was. So um, mm-hmm. I really love the writing of Dan Richards, for example. He wrote a book called Outpost, sure. um, and it's all about going to really remote places. But a lot of a lot of his stories about is about the journey there, how he gets there, who he meets, you know. And um, uh, I don't do that so much in my own writing. I tend to just sort of arrive. Um, and then I'm there and I don't tend to talk a lot about sort of background research or, or my travel there and so on. So I think I, I guess I take a slightly different approach, but I do, I do like having the eye present because I think that helps the reader understand these places as they are to walk in. Because it's one thing to read about places and it's another to actually be in them. And often they don't feel quite the way that you'd imagined they might be. So I suppose bringing in that sense of, you know, wind on your face and, and much more so even like the, the sort of creeping emotions that you feel while you're in a place, which are often not what you expect them to be. Um, I do think that's important. Uh, it depends what you're reading the book for, right? So mm-hmm. mine is intended not necessarily to be a, a book for scientists. You know, it's intended to be a book for, for, for the general reader. That was really important to me mm-hmm. um, and people who are interested in nature um, as part of nature writing as much as for the, for the scientific element of it, although the, the science is important because I think that adds, that adds meat, you know, like if you're doing nature writing at length, I do think you need to have something quite, quite solid at the heart of it, you know, some kind of ethical quandary perhaps, which I'm really interested in, especially in conservation. Mm-hmm. You know, you find these ethical quandaries a lot because everyone in conservation essentially wants to do the right thing, but the right thing is not obvious. The science might conflict or you have, a, have all of these sort of unintended consequences from, from interventionist conservation methods. And so I find that a very sort of pure way of writing about ethics because everyone does genuinely want to do the right thing. And so you can sort of weigh the various approaches against each other mm-hmm. and, and humanize it because you can talk about the, the people that are, that are there Right. I don't know in these stories. Yeah. Whether they be scientists or whether they be people left over. So I, I speak to like homeless people or who are living in these abandoned places or, or people who are making their lives in them one way or another. And I think that that adds an extra narrative and you can't really get that from the, the, the historical or scientific literature. You've just got to go there. Right. It's a bit more humanizing. There, there are a few, uh, I guess, things I want to touch more on. Uh, first, you, you just, just speaking a bit about uh, nature writing, um, and um, well, so if I were on the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year committee, I'd recommend that your book be shortlisted. Which is oh, to maybe. say that I, I think it's kind of a travel book, right? There is obvious that obvious like um, kind of travel component. I think it's a really good book, very strong book, but it's also a kind of a, a nature book. Um, and I understand like the dark side of labels and genres, um, but it also seems that you're kind of not so sure how to categorize your own book like i think somewhere in the introduction you say something like if this is a nature book then it's not one that romanticizes unspoiled places or something yeah so is it a nature book or how would you how would you categorize this uh, and you know to t- add on a second question like do you think these categories are constructive or constrictive for for thinking about writing you know i think they 
are instructive. I know it's kind of a good thing to rail against genre, but I think it's a really helpful way to understand books as a reader. Mm-hmm. Like you're, if you're interested in travel, you want to read more travel books, right? And then if you pick up a book that you think is going to be like that um, and is not, you're sort of disappointed because so much of the reading experience is about context and what you expect. Um, so I do, I do have quite a lot of respect for sort of the idea of having genre or division between them. Um, and then as a writer, it's sort of harder to put that into <laughs> practice. I, I did think that I was writing a fairly straight down the line nature book, but then mm. when it came to publishing it, I kept finding it on different shelves and then being like, oh yeah, they've got a point. It is a science book actually. So it's right that it's on the science shelf or yes, actually, of course it's a travel book. Of course it is. You know, <laughs> the whole, the whole experience of writing the book was yeah. spent on the move and, and in various countries and driving around and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it absolutely is a travel book. So I guess the, the genres are, are helpful in some sense. Um, but of course they overlap so much in practice. Um, I guess they're much more of like Venn diagrams in my head than they are right. like strict categories because so many books appeal to more than one set of readership, you know, that so many books appear to more than one type of readership. Um, and I think that now I've got a bit of a more forgiving attitude to, to finding the book in, in more than one. It also helps me understand the book a bit better. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the the strengths of your book. It's that um, it is interdisciplinary. Um, it covers a lot. You know, frankly, you know, some of the the best travel books are books that don't deal with travel at all. You know, they they <laughs> yes. deal with other other things, um, bigger ideas. Um, so it does make a lot of sense. And this Venn diagram is kind of a huge, helpful visualization uh, of that. Um, I, so I guess, like, as a secondary question to that, um, you'd mentioned. Dan Richards and his book Outposts. I, I spoke with Dan for the podcast, uh, like I think last year. Um, but you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about travel books sub- subgenres, or or maybe archetypes is a better term for it. Mm. Um, and so, like your book, I, I would call you know the format of your book. The form is something I would call like a big idea travel book, uh, and by that I mean like a book that uses an idea to frame and connect various chapters of travel narratives right that that can stand on their own so in your book human abandonment might be the idea that you investigate through your travels and each trap each chapter is a different kind of destination and a variation on the theme so like when and dan's book is very much like this um so i was wondering like when when you're writing the book how much thought went into kind of this form did you have this form kind of in mind and like locked in yes yes it was locked in right from the beginning i guess it was (laughs) the only way i could understand how how one might do it um so with my my publisher right at the beginning or my my british publisher there was a bit of discussion when uh, my editor thought you know maybe you should organize it thematically and talk you know about natural disasters and one and war in another but i found that um i couldn't figure out a way to make that work. It really needed to be stories that almost like case studies, each, each location. So there's 13 different locations in this book. Um, and each place sort of emblematizes a different issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those were places I knew I needed to go to at the beginning of the book. And it was just figuring out 
what was going to be the issue that I attached to them. So, for example, the Chernobyl exclusion zone, I went there first because it was, I think, the most obvious example of the phenomenon I was interested in, that Mm -hmm. idea of sort of nature reclaiming abandoned spaces. Um, So I knew I had to go there. um, And then I did all of my research there. But then that chapter changed a lot between my writing the sample chapter and where it ended up being, like what it ended up meaning in the in the final book. Whereas with other places, I started with uh, a concept I wanted to write about, and then I tried to find a place that that embodied that. So that was definitely like the botanical garden example, and um, Montserrat, in, in some senses, was like that as well. So this is um, the abandoned former capital of an island in the Caribbean, and it's it's flooded by um, sort of two stories deep of of volcanic ash, mm-hmm. um, and through that, I realized that I could talk then about the effect of super volcanoes on the climate. And then by extension, I could talk about climatological change. So that was, again, with both of those chapters, I sort of figured out what I needed to say and then figured out what places would best um, allow the story to, to enter us into a discussion of, if that, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so some of them, I knew the places in themselves were, were going to be the, the star of the show and others, it was much more about the idea behind them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You just uh, mentioned something about the sample chapter, and, and and I guess you're referring here to the proposal that you put together. Yes, that's right. right so, I guess how how clearly delineated uh, were these destinations um, in your mind as potential chapters um, when you were putting the proposal together? I mean, um, we hear stories about a book taking a radically different shape from the original proposal. I was wondering, like, was that the case here? Did did the book's shape evolve from the point of proposal to finished draft? The the details evolved. So I mm-hmm. think I suggested 12 locations in my proposal and I switched out one and added another one. Um, and then some of the, so like the focus of the Chernobyl chapter, for example, changed completely. But the I do feel like the shape and the concept behind the book was very much the same throughout mm-hmm. and I I find the book proposal stage really helpful um, because that in my opinion is when all of the sort of heavy lifting in terms of the thinking and the conceptualizing of the book happens and then I use that almost as like a, a a navigational tool throughout the research so that whenever I feel like overwhelmed by the amount of travel or information that I've gathered I can look back at the the introduction that I kind of wrote to the proposal and be like, oh yeah, this is what I'm doing. That's what I'm aiming towards. And it's, it's like a sort of form of, of literary dead reckoning. You know, it helps mm-hmm. me keep track of, of where I'm going with this. And so it, it certainly came full circle. And though the, the concrete examples that I used might change a bit, um, certainly like the theme of the book and the message of the book didn't really change very much from the beginning. And I, I, I quite like working that way because it, it, it is very hard up front but then it gives me a good sense of direction. Um, and then it just helps me sort of keep on my ducks in a row as I go along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, uh, that, do the heavy lifting up, up front. And I believe you mentioned somewhere in the book that, you know, this took you two years from start to finish, um, which I guess gives, gives me now, contextualizes it for me that, you know, how much um, kind of research went into this in the front end um, as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, kind of like offloading it until the end. Um, but it seems like you could have drawn from any 
large number of stories um, around the planet or destinations around the planet. And um, as you mentioned, some of these stories are in destinations more familiar than others, like Chernobyl, um, maybe Detroit. Um, so like, can you walk us through like when you're doing the research or the proposal or kind of doing that early heavy lifting that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, how, how did you determine on selecting uh, or omit, omitting places and stories for, for the book? I mean, what was that process like? So in a sense, it was, you know, you're kind of spoiled for choice. And I, th- I think like a, a lot of people will find that, you know, so much of it is in deciding what not to include. And, mm-hmm. and with travel heavy books, I suppose you've got a lot of practical um, considerations, you know, like how can you get places and are they definitely, you know, with, with abandoned places, especially, you know, they're, they're almost ephemeral by, by nature. So do these places definitely exist? Cause I could spend lots of time sort of Googling things or reading about places and books and then realize that actually they'd been knocked down 10 years before and replaced with a, a hotel or something. Right. So, um, partly it's just the sort of reading around, around and seeing which ones sort of stick with you because some places you just keep thinking about and those ones like you don't always know why but but for me that was like okay it's got some kind of emotional resonance or something there's something about this place and its story that that I keep thinking about and therefore there's a power in that um and but then you know to to some extent many of these chapters could have been about all sorts of other places and you know um I did travel a lot but but you know, in, in China and in East Asia, there's um, a lot of abandoned land on, on really huge scales. Same in South America. And those were continents I didn't visit and, and could have written a whole other book about then. And, you know, maybe I will keep continuing writing about various places that, that sort of fall into this pot of, of what I'm interested in. So to some extent, it's just what, <laughs> what I settle on. And it, it's definitely not by any means a, a definitive list of important places mm-hmm. yeah we'll look for a uh, part two <laughs> south america yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah great uh, so um thanks so much for your time cal this has been uh really insightful in, in terms of you know the ideas and also the the process uh the process behind writing uh, i saw on twitter uh just yesterday i believe that you have on your website kind of a, a newsletter where people can subscribe to just to keep in touch uh, irregular newsletter where people can, uh, I guess, stay up to date with your new projects. Um, can you tell us where to find that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have just a, a personal website with information about my books and, and articles. That's calflynn.com. So that's C-A-L-F-L-Y-N, just the one N.com. And uh, yeah, there's a sign up form there if you want to be on my very, very irregular newsletter. I'd love that. <laughs> you would. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this book is uh, one of my top books of the year and uh, just raving about it. So thank you uh, again for spending the time to speak with us. Oh, not at all. Absolutely delighted. I'm really flattered to be asked on. So thank you very much. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.